My name is Robert Brinkman. I'm the director of photography on the Rules of Attraction. And I got involved uh, with the project through a mutual friend of Roger's and mine, um, Jason Roberts, who is an assistant director. And he was originally going to be the first assistant director on this film, which is a position that he hadn't held previously. So he called me and said that he was going to do this and that he was interested in having a cameraman who would be supportive and nice to him <laughs> because it can be a, a strenuous relationship. And he asked me if I would be interested in meeting Roger and I said absolutely yes. And so I think uh, I got a script first which I read and immediately loved because I'm a big Brett Easton Ellis fan. And then Jason set up a breakfast meeting with Roger and myself and himself in a little cafe in Venice and I remember the first time I met Roger because that's an experience you you're unlikely to forget. He's a film buff and uh, an incredibly talented filmmaker and he had written the script himself, adapted it from from the novel and uh, had very clear ideas of what he wanted and I immediately got very excited about possibly being a part of this project. And as it turns out, Jason ended up not doing this job. Instead, we had another first assistant director who was also incredible, and we had a great time with him. But I ended up being on this picture, so the whole thing was really kind of an accident. I was supposed to be there to help out Jason, and I ended up doing it instead of him. The director of photography is responsible for the photography of a movie, that is to say everything that has to do with the camera, the moving of the camera, and the lights, and the control of the lights. She's now married to a senator. So the challenge for us was to um, make a film that would never let anybody feel like we didn't have everything that we needed to make it. This is a film that takes place on the East Coast over the course of an entire year, so we have different seasons. We have an East Coast college and uh, all the locations involved with that. And we had to do that in Los Angeles, which doesn't really look much like the East Coast. And we had to create the seasons, even though there are none here. Also, we uh, you know, wanted to impose a, a visual design on the film that uh, represented our taste and would serve the story. So we had to basically make uh, Los Angeles look like something that it just absolutely is not. Silent movie actress quality. <laughs> serious, has anyone ever told you that you look like Clara Bow? Because you do, I'm serious, I'm telling you that. One of the basic visual designs of the film is that we wanted to represent the seasons. Since we don't have a lot of exterior shots, we wanted to have the feel of the seasons also in the interiors. And we decided that we would represent the colors of the seasons and change them accordingly throughout the picture. We basically picked green, yellow-green for summer. And then fall colors, more orange, reddish uh, for fall. and. Uh, bluish wintry colors for winter boyfriend's house probably swallowing his dna and i didn't have a joint either and if i did i didn't know where it was because it would have been lorna slavin's joint he wouldn't have cared if i had one or not i must have passed out around then when i came to he was already fucking me so here we're shooting in an abandoned hospital 
in Downey that is actually the main location for all of our dorm rooms, every one of the dorm houses. And all the rooms are really tiny rooms. Um, I think there were sleeping rooms for nuns that were working in the hospital or some such strange thing, but there were very small rooms. I can't believe people actually lived in them. They, of course, all had hard walls that couldn't be moved. So this wasn't at all like working on a set where if something's in your way, you just take it away and put the camera there, and then later you can put it back. We had to mount all of our lights, all the camera equipment, into these little rooms, so it got very crowded in there, even in a scene like this where we really only have three actors in the scene. In a room that's maybe 10 by 12 feet, you have to imagine that there probably at least 12 to 15 people in the room at this time, all crammed into various corners and trying to stay out of the shot and not be in the light. Don't put in there, it's sparking my shot. Get the fuck out of here before you ruin my movie. <gasps> I want to talk about the recipe for, um, for the vomit. There are, of course, many tricks uh, visually to make vomit and blood look realistic. And, um, for example, when you're shooting a black and white film and you use actual blood for the blood, it doesn't look anything like blood. But if you use chocolate syrup, it looks dead on. And, of course, in color, it's different. You couldn't use chocolate syrup, so there are various recipes for that, and vomit is one of those things, too, that can easily look unrealistic. But fortunately, Roger had a fabulous recipe for vomit, um, which, if I remember correctly, consisted of cream of mushroom soup, chopped up carrots, and some chutney. Uh, and I remember Roger insisting on actually chopping the carrots himself so that the chunks would look properly uh, half-digested. The concussion apparently was uh, just really horrendous because I think he offered to hold it in his own mouth um, to prove to our actor that uh, it was in fact something that you could hold in your mouth. And he wasn't going to ask the actor to do it without doing it himself. But uh, as it turns out, I don't think he could take it for longer than just a few seconds and started gagging and had to spit it out. For um, this scene, we shot a lot of film in reverse. And uh, we had talked about this in pre-production, that you know we could do this as opticals, meaning we would shoot the film forward, and then uh, an optical house could make a special effect and uh, make the film run backwards. But every time you have an optical, there's another generation of film and therefore it uh, becomes grainier, more contrasty and the colors can slightly differ and so I suggested to Roger that it would be great to shoot the reverse shots at the same time as we're shooting the forward shots. Then we could run the film both ways, whichever way we wanted. So we actually employed two cameras that were side by side or sometimes at different angles but because it was supposed to look like the same shot we usually put them as close together as possible and we would simply run one camera forward and one camera backward and shoot the very same action at the same time. That way, when we go from the forward into the backward motion, it really looks like it's the same shot. But it isn't, it's slightly different. If you pay very, very close attention, you can see that the axis isn't exactly the same. The closer an actor is to the camera, the more you can actually see the difference of this axis because the camera itself is, even though they're not 
that big, they're big enough to force the lenses apart from each other by just a few inches. And then if you aim them at the same actor, the angle is different. So you can tell that the background is just slightly different and the angle on the actor in the foreground is as well. But the benefit of doing it this way, of course, is that it looks much nicer than um, having opticals all over the movie. Of course, some shots still had to be done at, as opticals, so on some of them, if you pay very close attention, you can tell that uh, they weren't shot uh, simultaneously, but that they are, in fact, opticals. For example, the shot where the action stops and then goes back in the other direction are opticals, because that simply can't be done in the camera. Get the fuck I'm not gay. You're lucky I don't kill so you. So this is again our principal location in Downey, the abandoned hospital. Luck has nothing to do with it. Everything is preordained. The hallways that we painted in in our colors, in our color scheme. You can will the oceans to overwhelm the world, to cause the moon to drop. It's very difficult to make this location look interesting because it's so small. So wherever you look, really, there is a wall just a few feet away, and it's flat. Luck has nothing to do with anything. There are very few windows or layers. Um, there's just really no depth to this location, especially in the rooms, because they're maybe 10 by 12 feet. And it's almost impossible to get any foreground or background, because after 12 feet, you literally hit a wall. The hallways are a little bit better, because there's at least some depth to them, but really not that much. So the trick is to photograph this for a big chunk of the film and have it not get completely boring. Fortunately, we had a great production designer, Sharon Seymour, who, who I've worked with uh, many times and I love working with, and she would always make sure that she would give us whatever we could possibly have to put in the frame to make it more interesting. In this case, of course, the uh, Christmas decorations help the light, it just breaks up the frame a little bit where otherwise you'd have solid colors and, uh, and planes that uh, would look very, very boring. One thing that really helped us was that we had great actors to look at. The whole cast, I think, is probably one of the most beautiful casts I've seen in a film in, in a really long time, and they have very interesting, uh, compelling faces. So. So that to me makes all of these shots work. And since I'm talking about the cast and and the budget, I should mention that the feel of the film, of the whole shoot, was really very, very special. Because we're all doing this film for so little money and we really didn't have a lot of resources and because nobody there was getting paid $15 million, it all felt like we were in this together and we're all doing this film because we liked the film and we liked working on it and we wanted to do a good job. And it was a really great feeling of camaraderie between everybody. It's something that doesn't always happen on pictures. It can happen and I think that's one of the things that makes working on film fun. I think the feeling on this film was quite extraordinary. I remember that I'd called one of my favorite camera operators. That's the person that actually moves the camera and 
composes the frame together with me and, and the director. And he's a very big camera operator. He worked on films like Speed and Twister and big action movies. And I, I've called him pretty much on every film that I do, and usually he's off doing a film like Twister or Speed and isn't available. And he happened to be available because this was a slow time in Hollywood, and so he said, yes, he'd do this film, even though the pay was much less than he's used to, and you know the comforts were much less than he's used to. But he came on, and I think he's never had as much fun on a picture as on this one, because everybody was into it, and, and everybody could contribute to it because of Roger's attitude of, of inviting um, input and, and being open to, to suggestions and, and also being very, very good at motivating people and uh, getting them to, to do their best work for him. So Mike Scott, who was the camera operator, did a really beautiful job on this film and, and worked his butt off and I think never made less money and never had a better time on a picture in his career. And talking about uh, my crew, I should mention a couple of other people. We had a very illustrious gaffer, Ray Peschke, who's a, a wonderful person. His job is to light, uh, together with me, the scenes. Ray has done more films, I think, than the rest of the crew <laughs> combined. He's worked uh, on films forever, and he's lit really big pictures, including some that have won Academy Awards, like Born on the Fourth of July. But he also did uh, Eight Men Out. Um, he did uh, a few other Oliver Stone films. If you look him up on the internet, you'll see his incredible resume. I've worked with him on, on a bunch of pictures, and uh, he is always somebody who's up for doing things that are different and uh, finding ways of, of working that, uh, that are non-traditional. Even though she was making soft little moans, he was semi-stiff and losing his erection. Something was wrong. Something was missing. He didn't know what. This is one of the few sets that we had, but it's still in our main Downey location. This was a larger room, probably a meeting room of some sort, because we had a few scenes here that were simply too tricky to shoot in one of the really tiny rooms. Um, our production designer, Sharon Seymour, built a set, three walls, against a fourth wall that, that was a real structural wall with a window in it. And that's where the, the scene with James just now was shot. Uh, hi, this is Harry Ralston, the second unit director on Rules of Attraction. Actually, I'm a friend of Roger's. I'm a filmmaker as well, and I made uh, a movie called The Last Man, which Roger executive produced. So uh, when Roger was going to make the Rules of Attraction, he asked me if I would come do second unit. And I said, you know, I, I don't know anything about second unit photography. And he said, look, second unit is just getting all the stuff that people need, but that the principal photographer, you know, the filmmaker doesn't have time to shoot themselves. He said, however, often that stuff has a kind of a generic quality to it, and I think that if I have a filmmaker do it, it will have more point of view, and I think that that will make the film a little richer. So on that basis, I came in and shot a few of the sequence that we're going to see, not the special effects stuff, but some of the uh, people walking around the campus and stuff like that. 
the thing about it was this, that I got there not knowing how to do second unit or what the responsibilities were. And I had tried to get Roger to sit down with me and go over it, but he kept saying, okay, just be here at two o'clock and we'll talk about it. And then I'd get there at two and there was no chance. So I actually went to this shoot, shot that shot there, with a, no idea what was expected of me. I thought that might look cool backwards, so I did shoot that part. And so Roger just said, oh, just, just go out on the campus and shoot the shit out of it. You'll get it, you'll get it. And so I went out just with a crew and I just started shooting whatever I felt like. And then uh, about halfway through the sh my time there, I thought, you know, I don't think, I, I get the feeling that as a, as a second unit photographer, I'm supposed to have certain responsibilities in this script. I better ask. And then I asked like the first uh, assistant director and he started screaming at me like, what the hell is wrong with you? What have you been doing? You've been running around shooting just whatever the hell you felt like? What are you crazy? And I said, I, I'm sorry, sir. I, I, and then I found out that there are like seven shots I'm really supposed to shoot in the movie, uh, aside from just getting some cool coverage. So I went out and then shot those shots and then I was summarily sent home. <laughs> because I had sort of used up too much film, I think. This was in Redlands, and it it was very... Uh, every one of these shots is carefully chosen to eliminate any palm trees that you might see in the movie, but it was right there in California. scene. So I shot some of this. Uh, actually, there were like three people directing this scene. Greg Shapiro, one of them. He uh, had a very distinct point of view about how that yoga should be shot. Yeah, I would have to just sum up this whole thing by saying that I did the second unit work, but it was a little scary because I didn't really know what the hell I was doing. But Roger has a lot of faith in people. So despite the fact that I was just a normal director, he just trusted me to go out there and get what he needed. The last thing I'll say about all this is, even though these shots I think are somewhat coherent, that day uh, I was shooting under a, a severe toxic hangover because the night before um, was the first night there and I went out with Roger and uh, the producer and uh, the, uh, James Vanderbeek and they all wanted to go to a strip club so we went to a strip club. Then they all recognized Vanderbeek and so you know, when you've got a combination of strippers and like a TV movie star, forget it. The drinks start flowing for free. You, there's table dances going on all over the place. So every time I looked down, there was another stewards and water in front of me. <laughs> and I had about six of them and then a few shots. And then uh, I hadn't been that drunk since I was in college. And I wandered backstage in the strip club to say hello to a few of the strippers that I had met up front. And that, uh, that didn't go over well, so I was asked to leave. And then I was stumbling home, stopped by the police. And then when I actually woke up the next day, it was about three hours, I think, after I was supposed to be there. And I got a phone call from Roger or Roger's assistant or somebody saying, uh, where are you? Like this really scary phone call, like I had completely ruined the entire movie. And so that I rushed over there with a head 
that felt like it was imploding. I had to direct my scenes. And uh, that was my lovely first day uh, on Rules of Attraction. And I think for some reason, I then was known as like some drunkard who missed their call times and showed up whenever they felt like it. So it was really great for my reputation as well. Probably became my first and last second unit directing job. This is one of my favorite scenes, not just because Clifton Collins is so incredibly entertaining, but also because the look of the scene is just so weird. The idea was that uh, he's a drug dealer who lives in his mom's house, basically. Uh, and he's trying to keep the outside world out so that people don't see what's going on in the house. And so he's not just got curtains, but he actually tacked up bed sheets over the windows and the bed sheets have colors so that the whole light in this room is colored. There's yellow light coming from behind him and, and from the walls inside the, the room and then on the uh, front windows towards the street there are actually pink bed sheets so that there's pink light in there as well. And I always called this the, the timer's nightmare because the, the colors are also weird, so that when in the lab the timer tries to adjust the colors, he has absolutely no reference because nothing looks normal. But I love it just because it's so different. We try to keep it somewhat dark. It's not terribly dark, but there, there are shadows, and, um, and the light that is there is, is kind of surreal to make this an even scarier character than he already is. Clifton looks really fabulous. He, his makeup is incredible. His eyes are so red and bloodshot, and he's so sweaty, and you really think that he's on drugs. And in fact, people who've seen the film have asked me if he is on drugs, or uh, how come that is so unbelievably realistic? And I have to assure them that he really just looked like that after he came out of the makeup trailer. But I think they just did a terrific job. He, he really looks the part. You're into me for a fuckload of money. And I think you and your motherfucking rich kid friends are gonna take off to all your rich ass motherfucking lives, leaving me holding my motherfucking dick. So fuck you. Fucking Rupert, fucking A, man. I'm not like those rich assholes, dude. I'm on financial aid, man. I have to work for a living. I'm from a fucking farm in Nebraska, for Christ's sakes. My family had to sell the fucking cow to get me. Also in the scene is another one of those film tricks. We've talked about blood and vomit and here, of course, we have mounds of cocaine, uh, since it really wouldn't help for him to actually snort cocaine in the scene. We had to figure out something that he could snort that uh, doesn't affect him and that also doesn't hurt him. So what we used was powdered milk, which uh, I guess doesn't really do anything when you suck it up into your nostrils, other than be kind of annoying and come out in the days after as a white slime. That's what I told people, so they wouldn't laugh at But uh, it really looks like cocaine, and, and it worked very well. Jesus Christ, man, I can get these kids to overpay. They're so desperate for drugs. I'm your key to moving this shit on campus, man. You need me, and you know it, and I need the cash. We need each other. You get this straight, fuckhead. I need you like I need a motherfucking asshole. This is a point of view shot. That's to say, it's a shot that looks as if you're looking out of Jameson's eyes. And that meant that Clifton had to act directly into the camera. James couldn't be anywhere near there. And he did such a fabulous job. He actually, at one point, sticks the gun into the matbox so that there's a shadow from the matbox falling onto the gun. 
but it really looks like it would look if you were James and somebody stuck a gun in your face. You know I'm just bugging with you, baby, right? Clifton was hilarious. It's a scary scene, but he did such a great job and he was so out there that this was actually a very hard scene to shoot because he would perform and you could almost not control yourself because it was so brilliant and you wanted to laugh at some of the things that he did because they were so unexpected. Fresher than the morning snow with a bumble clot wrong with him. Maybe 20% of a market value. 50% you say? Hot damn college boy! This also was a location in Los Angeles. It was a small house, relatively normal, really nothing architecturally that was different about it. But And we just needed basically a pad that we could convert to something like this. There was really nothing special, just somebody who would let us take their house and uh, screw it up for a few days and shoot it as a drug dealer's house. This location is back at the Downey Hospital. And this is one of those little rooms that has flat walls and not much else going on. And in this scene, we decided to try and make it look interesting by making it very dark and very dingy. Really, the only bright light in the scene is on his knee, and everything else is, is quite underexposed. And I loved that idea. I, th I don't know if Roger came up with it or I did, but we... Uh, basically decided to just make it a dark room with, with one shard of light. And Roger, of course, uh, picked a silent movie here to run in the background, which, if you notice, is running on mute. Um, that's just a little in-joke. Again, what, what makes this work, despite the fact that this is a, a very limiting location, is that we've got two actors who are really compelling, giving great performances, and lighting that uh, gives gives it some shape and, and gives it some interest. So that we're not looking, we're not realizing the fact that really what we're looking at is a wall five feet in this direction and five feet in the other direction. Oh. 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 I can feel my dick. I can feel my dick. That's a Philips flat screen, by the way. Unfortunately, it's a little bit too low to, to realize that he has such a nice TV in the scene because the idea was that he's really a, a rich kid with lots of money who's just not paying his bills. Hey. So he's got all these nice accoutrements like what this TV and a nice Macintosh or computer that's uh, to Jameson's right there. And actually, just as a little side note, I love this flat screen TV so much that I uh, got our set decorator to call Philips and uh, see if they would sell me one. Um, and they did. And it now hangs in my TV room. Just don't fuck my karma, dude. Don't fuck it up. There's the Macintosh computer, another flat-screen panel. This scene, when we're shooting it, 
we realized had a scratch on it. The way we found that out was that uh, my camera assistant, um, Tom Vandermillen, always checks the end of every roll when we finish shooting it, and he found some traces of film emulsion. But because we were on such a short schedule, we didn't have time to actually shoot the shot again. And um, so it was decided that day that we would take the scratch out in post, fix it in post, as they say, which in fact really happened, though it usually is preferable to actually reshoot it because uh, you don't have to spend money on an optical and um, it just looks better that way. But they did a very nice job and there's no trace left of it. I can't see anything of it anymore. Um, this was a fabulous scene, the, the Burning Man, which was loosely inspired by The Wicker Man, a film that uh, Roger adores and, and uh, showed me in our pre-production time. I'd never seen or heard of it. And now, of course, I'm a big fan myself. But the Wicker Man was really, I'm sorry, the Burning Man was really designed to look like the Wicker Man. We had to find a location where we could um, have a fire as large as this in uh, an area where we weren't going to start a real fire. So we shot this at a reservoir in a you know, fairly big dirt lot with some trees around it, but with enough clearing that there wasn't any danger of us setting anything on fire. Originally, we were trying to shoot this in Griffith Park in a parking lot, but there were too many trees too close. And even though the location would have been great for me because it was very close to my home, um, we ended up having to drive about an hour so that uh, we wouldn't create a major disaster. No, I... In this scene, the idea is that the main light comes from this gigantic burning wicker man. So we actually used flame bars to uh, to light the actors, and that's why you see the light flickering. We also used some movie lights um, that we would uh, then shade off and on so that uh, it supported the flicker. But really, most of the light here is from actual flames that were coming out of uh, propane-powered flame bars that are closer to the actors. The other light, the backlight, is um, a different color temperature. It's cooler. It's being motivated by cars that are parked in the background with their headlights on. Um, that's something that I had thought about before we were shooting the scene, but then on the location I'd forgotten to ask about it. And it was actually Eric Stoltz who came up to me and said, well, don't you think there should be some cars around here with their headlights on? to motivate some of the backlight, and I said, yeah, absolutely. I had meant to say that, but I'd just forgotten about it. And so then I called for the cars, and our transportation guys were great, and brought in a whole bunch of cars and just turned the lights on. But I couldn't forget that it was Eric Stolz who was the one who actually suggested it and, and had thought about it. He's obviously been around a long time, and he's directed, and he knows his stuff. Can we go with Mitchell? Candace? Her name is Candace. Yeah, I had a class with her, but I failed it. Really? It's great when you have people on the set like that who, who have experience and who enjoy um, giving their two cents worth, because frequently you get really fabulous suggestions. And I like working that way myself. That was one of the nice things about the relationship between Sharon Seymour, the production designer, and Roger and myself. We would be very open about meddling in each other's business, and Sharon would frequently 
um, make suggestions about how she thinks things should be lit, and I would always tell her how I thought they should be designed, and it makes for a fun experience. This is the split-screen sequence, which culminates in our motion control shot. This is a sequence that, that Roger had conceived and written into the script, and really everything that you're about to see was pretty much spelled out exactly this way in the script. And it was incredible because it's really a simple idea, but it's so powerful and it's so appropriate for, for the scene. And Roger had thought of it before I ever even met him, because it was in the first version of the script that I read, and we realized it exactly the way he had conceived of it. Here it is in the final film, just the way he had written it, and you can really see that everything in a movie starts with the script, with the way the writer conceives it and, and puts it down on the page. Because I remember when I read this scene, that this is how I imagined it, and um, this is how Roger visualized it, and, um, and exactly how it came out. When we, rise in the morning. we shot the different halves over different days on the campus, some in Redlands on the right side, and some in our Downey location on the left side, and we would always pick up a piece here or there, and because we were trying to conserve time, we would usually have them both go through the same shot. We would just send uh, Shannon through and then James, and you'll see that because the offset of time is happening here, that uh, James will be going through some of the very same locations that Shannon's going through. We had to compose the halves so that uh, everything that we wanted to see was in half of the frame. Originally, I had thought for a, a second about maybe shooting it so that the right half is actually shot on the right half of, of the screen and the left half is actually shot on the left half of the screen, but because of the way that motion picture lenses perform, that isn't a really good idea because basically the lenses work best around the optical center and the further away you go from the optical center, the more distortion you have, even on, on very good lenses. So it becomes distorted and sometimes slightly out of focus. So what we ended up doing is we ended up getting our ground glass marked so that we would have a half frame marked uh, but centered on the center of the frame. So that way we could frame for each half. Then later on, when the optical house put uh, the two halves together, they would move them over to the left or the right. But the compositions are actually what we looked at on the set and what we decided on the set. So there is no accident in a scene like this. When we rise in the morning, when you can see that it's difficult to compose uh, some of these things and get all the information into the shot. In the shot that we just saw of Shannon, she was smoking the joint and Eric was sleeping in the background and the writing on the blackboard, it all just barely fit into the frame.
And of course, all these shots are leading up to the payoff, which is this shot. This is a hallway with motion control dolly that runs perpendicular. And because the hallway is so narrow, we actually had to run the dolly track into one of the teacher's offices. The teacher whose office we used actually wasn't aware that we were doing this. The university had just let us use that office and showed up on the day of shooting and got quite upset that we had entered his private space. But of course, we'd set this up for an entire day and um, everything was very much fine-tuned and couldn't be moved, so there was really no way to accommodate him and we just ended up shooting the scene this way anyway. I don't know yet. What's yours? I don't even know. <laughs> Your name's Sean Bateman, right? What we did is we found a frame on each side, one for Shannon, one for James. And then we found a common end frame, which is with the dolly pulled all the way over into the office and the camera turns so that we have a, a profile shot of the two of them. We found the beginning frame and the end frame and then programmed the computer to make up the difference in between. And that's how we come here to where the two sides now actually meld. Because it's a motion control setup, the camera so accurately lands in the end position that the two halves can be married seamlessly. By the time that we finished shooting the scene, which was technically very difficult, it was of course night and pitch dark outside, but we shined a big light uh, on the building next door and made it feel like there's sunlight. Ian Somerhalder, another one of the great-looking faces in this film. It's really one of those faces you can't light wrong. You can throw any kind of light you want on him and it'll look interesting. Again, we're in the downy location. You notice the walls five feet from the camera. The mirror helped us create a little bit of depth. That is so typical. I just knew something like this was going to happen. I just had a feeling that there would be some obstacle major or minor. This is also in the transition phase of the film. This is really going into fall now. So you'll notice that in the next shot that's coming up, which is a night shot, we used orange nightlight normally. Cinematographers use blue or white or um, something like that, and um, we decided that we would make our nights colored according to the season that we're in. So this is supposed to be fall, and therefore the nightlight is orange. Oh my god, I brought Paul. What did he take? This looks like a really simple scene, and it's it's really just one shot, but it was quite difficult to get all the action into this frame because the room was so small and we see almost all of it. Uh, we had to keep the lights out of the frame. There was really no way to move the camera much. 
and the actress had to do all the action, including picking him up and taking him out of the room without breaking out of the edges of the frame. This whole car scene, I think, was shot in about 15 minutes because we had been shooting in the hotel in Pasadena for a while, and uh, we only had uh, about an hour left in our day, so that by the time we got to shooting this car scene, which was supposed to have taken probably three or four hours, we had about 15 minutes left before we had to wrap and the sun came up. So I turned to Roger and I said, I don't think we can, we can get this all done. He said, oh yeah, I can do it. We'll just do it really quick. So we hopped in the car and I had the camera handheld and the gaffer ray had rigged some lights um, on the outside. And we just literally drove for 15 minutes and I hopped from seat to seat and uh, shot three different shots in the car and the scene is, I think, great. And it was amazing because sometimes you just come up with much better stuff with, without time. Is there anybody else around here? Please, Hello. This is Harry, please take care of Harry. Please, you've got to take care of him. Please. This hospital is one of my favorite locations because it perfectly exemplifies how Roger and Sharon and I work together. It's also at our Downey location, and it was the most dilapidated, run-down, disgustingly dirty place I've ever seen in my life when we first went there. And it was such a huge cleanup job that we're all concerned about actually being able to afford it and make it look like a hospital. But Roger, when we were scouting it in the very beginning, and it was just Sharon and Roger and myself, said, I know how we can shoot this scene. We will look in this direction, out towards the front, and we'll look in this direction, towards the back. And all that we need to do is clean up this one room here and then give us a little background in the other direction. But we won't do anything anywhere else. So we sent a cleaning crew in there. Sharon painted this front room and one of my electricians wired the overhead lights for the background. And made this look like a hospital. But if you went anywhere in this location, just a few feet off axis or around a corner, you would really see that this is a ruin that, uh, that wouldn't pass for anything. But um, because Roger decided the very first day that we looked at this, that this is how he wanted to shoot it, we knew that we could afford it because only this much work had to be done. And amazingly enough, that's how the scene was shot and, and realized, and we never lacked for anything else. I remember our producer seeing that location for the first time and saying that it absolutely could not work. It was too run down and there was no way we could fix it up. And we convinced him that we only needed to see these certain angles and that we could do that. And he, of course, assumed that like on any movie, Roger or I or somebody would change their mind, would want to see more of the location after all. Bulimic skinny or anorexic skinny? What's the difference? Bulimic skinny passes for healthy. But the wonderful thing is that Roger and Sharon and I really had the same vision and um, could look at the location at that day and decide that it would work. Okay, we'll do the math. If a condom is 98% safe and he wears two, then you're 196% safe. That is a much better percentage than the pill can offer. I don't think it works that way, Laura. Absolutely. Roger is very spontaneous on the set. When he heard that. Jessica can do handstands. He said, well, why don't you do them in this scene? I don't know. Lauren, listen to your... So, all of a sudden, we had her doing handstands, and she's really good at it. You 
can't just wait for destiny to play itself out. You have to make it happen. This scene is an optical, it's a steady cam shot that starts out looking over the balcony. And this is in our fall colors, so really this was supposed to be orange and not green, but that grass down there was vibrant green. Since this little building is actually a historical landmark, we weren't really allowed to kill the grass. But because it is also an optical, you see the superimposition of the party title. The effects house pixel magic did me a favor and took out the green of the grass and made it look like burnt grass, which I think they did really wonderfully because I can't tell. She looks through it to discourage herself from hooking up people like you. It's got some pretty nasty imagery. This is again our downy location. It's a very small building and, and not really a big space for the party, but we managed to cram quite a few people and crew into the upstairs of this little abandoned building that for some reason is a historical landmark. Roger and I were really sick on this night. There was a cold going around the crew and even though we're both fairly healthy individuals at this point, we're so tired and run down that our immune systems just couldn't help. And I think on this night, and there was a night shoot, we both had a fever. We were both absolutely miserable. We could actually barely get up. We were sitting on bean bags or equipment and looking at this monitor at two in the morning, freezing cold and just not having a good time. But it was also very much towards the end of the shoot, and we just simply had to make it. There, there was no other way. It ended up being quite a difficult night for both of us, and every time Roger had to give directions, he had to peel himself off the floor and push himself to, to make the few steps to the set and talk to his actors. I think we're also coming up on the shot that had the most takes on the entire film. It's this shot. It ran into 20 takes. Normally on a film with this budget and this time schedule, you really don't get into more than maybe five or six takes, and you try to stick to two or three so that you can move along and not use up more time than is allotted. But of course, it, if it's absolutely not working, then you have to keep trying and okay, this so one time at four in the morning or five shortly before the sun came up when we were doing this scene it just wasn't working and so we ended up trying again and trying again all the while we we're deathly ill and miserable but uh, it did finally work out and I think take 20 uh, Roger and Shannon and I were all happy and uh, we could finally go home This is actually one of the few interiors that we shot at the exterior location in Redlands. It's an actual teacher's office that's being used as a teacher's office. The scene was called Lauren Improves Her GPA. It's my favorite scene title.
Eric Stoltz is really a fabulous actor to work with because he's so experienced and he's directed himself. He really knows the job of almost everybody on the crew. So it's very easy to work with him because he understands what has to be done and he will frequently suggest things himself and say, well, what about if I move my mark this way and would that be better for your light? Or he will um, automatically know that certain technical adjustments have to be made and uh, make sure that you have the time in the scene to make them. Yeah. <laughs> like many other scenes in the film, this is a, a single shot scene here that runs for a very long time. It's an aesthetic that uh, I really like, oh. No, that Roger was trying oh. to employ, that we weren't just cutting for the sake of cutting, that when things would play, we could just let the shot play. It's something that I think really enhances the picture if the performances support it. And it also helps make films on a low budget because it means you can actually do the work in a shorter amount of time. The more coverage, the more individual shots you shoot, of course, the more time you take up. Sometimes it may take a little bit longer to, to get one long scene just right. So it may seem like you're not getting enough done, but uh, when after a few takes, you all of a sudden have the whole scene in the can, then you're really ahead of the game. Heard you're talented, Miss Hind. And it certainly can't hurt your GPA. So, shall we? The dolly here is timed so that just as we've moved in to exclude his crotch area, he's opened up his pants and now she bobs out of frame. There's really not much nudity or graphicness in the film at all. It's all suggested, but for some reason people really react to it because the suggestion is so strong. But when you really think about it and you look at this DVD, you'll see that there isn't really much to object to at all. So where'd you spend last summer? Berlin. Flecken Sie Deutsch? What? Do you speak German? No. At the risk of being repetitive, I want to point out that this is again the downy location with <laughs> tiny little rooms. No, why? Here we have a scene where it was difficult to do something interesting because Everybody's pretty static, and in this case, right up against the wall. So there's really no opportunity to create any kind of depth at all. I need to get some more pot. But because it was a night scene, it uh, allowed us to, again, use low-key lighting that creates some shadows and makes it interesting. That Laura girl was kind of hot. I could bang her into a bit about it. I'd rather have Lauren. I wonder why. It'll just ruin my illusion of her innocence. Purity. It's also another split-screen shot that, again, really what I want? was described exactly this way in the script. I need and uh, then I need to get was away. realized exactly the way it had been conceived to begin with. I watched him with growing intensity as he refilled the pipe in the dark and smoky den of the room. 
He delicately fingered what looked like dry moss to me, and it struck me then that I liked Sean because he looked, well, slutty. Boy who'd been around, boy who couldn't remember if he was Catholic or not. between James and Ian was a, a little bit awkward moment because when we were shooting it, both of them were not really looking forward to that part of the scene. And, and it was a little awkward asking them to perform this in front of the camera. Then all of a sudden, right when they were doing it, it seemed like they really got into it and it was a lot more than we all expected. It was really fabulous because it, it worked out and, and was very, very believable. Again, here we have only suggestion, nothing actually graphic that can be seen. I remember when we were shooting this shot, the close-up of the TV monitor, we were in a different room and looking at the video tap from the camera, and that's a, a little camera in the eyepiece of our film camera that lets uh, the director and myself see what the camera operator is seeing through the eyepiece. So we're watching TV with this big, giant breast being sucked. And right at that moment, my wife came to visit me and looked over my shoulder and looked at the monitor and said, what are you shooting? Mom, does it have to be this weekend? I have a lot of school work. How about next weekend? Richard. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you too. I have to go into the city tomorrow night. Here, the same tiny little room has a completely different feel, of course, because it's the next morning. And so instead of using just that one single light source, at night, we have light streaming in from the outside to try and make this feel different and, and freshen it up. It's also nice every time we can open up and just see even just a little bit of depth, like here, where we peek into the hallway. This bus stop too was our downy location, some back alley in a hospital that really was nothing like a bus station at all. But um, we got three buses, the one that you just saw driving away and the two in the other direction. When we shot in this direction, of course, we moved the bus around to make it look like we had more buses, but it was a long discussion over just how many buses we would need to make it feel like a bus station, every bus, of course, costing money so that in both directions you usually see all three of our buses in the shot as we're trying to squeeze the most bang out of our buck.
the post office location too is is in Downey and um, was just a building. I don't know what the use of that building was, but Sharon bought these post office boxes and built them in there for us. And it was actually a, a nice place to work because there was room outside the post office boxes for shots like this. We could put the camera behind and look through. These walls that you see here are just flats on which the boxes have been installed. And in the other direction, we had windows so you could actually see outside and um, have depth, which was something that was tonight's really tonight. difficult to find tonight's in this location, but that tonight's visually tonight's is just tonight's much more tonight's interesting. Tonight's the night. Tonight's the night. Tonight's the night. And of course, here we came up with a lot of different shots that, that we'll see later of um, so, mailboxes and letters. I was a lucky boy. I'm not telling. You will if you want me out of the room tonight. Okay, okay, okay. This again is the powdered milk trick for cocaine. Jing, jing, you know what I mean? Jing, like you just know that that you're gonna be with that person. It's something amazing is gonna happen. You know what I mean? It's a really simple scene. It's really just two faces, and the lenses are so long that the background is blurry and you don't see much of it. But it's the two faces that that make the scene work. It's a clinical disorder which causes you to hear what you see and see what you hear. It's, it's a completely uncontrolled combination of your senses. You should really get that checked out. You know, Prozac might help. What? <sighs> rusty pipes. The rusty pipes line, I remember, was a line that uh, Roger told me a friend had used on him and uh, it was so memorable that he put it in the script and employed it here. Can I talk to Sean Bateman? I think he lives upstairs. This hotel room here was shot in a very fancy hotel in Pasadena, and that was actually the one location that we had on this movie that really was an extraordinary location. It was very expensive, and it's really a tribute to our producer that he understood and agreed to spend the money for us to have this location. The room itself isn't so important, but the dining room scene that we shot that will come up after this, and also a bar scene, which unfortunately was cut from the movie, are really scenes that couldn't have been done any other place. We wanted to just have the screen ooze wealth and get this feeling of just this really posh, exclusive kind of place to, to help establish the world that these people live in. The hotel was very, very beautiful. And it was something that we couldn't have found anywhere and couldn't have built because it would have just been way too expensive. And so while most of the film was shot in our Downey location, which because of a California uh, rebate program was actually a free location for us, 
uh, in this particular place, we spent, I think, 10 or $15,000 a day for three days, which for our little movie was an enormous amount of money. But what is great to do is to spend money on things that you absolutely have to spend them on, even if it's expensive, and then save it other places. And that's something that our producer, Jeremiah Samuels, was um, extremely good at. The minute that Roger and Sharon and I came to him and said, this is a ex location that we really want, and yes, it's very, very expensive, but we'll make whatever compromises necessary to be able to shoot here, he immediately agreed and basically gave us what, what really turned out to be a fabulously beautiful place. For me, of course, it's a, it's a lot of fun to light because here, for the first time, really, we have a lot of depth, not, again, so much in this room, but also here and then especially later on in, in the restaurant. Um, this was also our first day with Faye Dunaway. She was only on the picture for a couple of days, and she was really a lot of fun to work with. <laughs> Roger, as always on the whole film, is very open, very spontaneous. So the dance scene that's coming up here on the bed uh, was one of those situations where we had finished the day's work, and I think we had a fully loaded mag on the camera. We usually download things at the end of the day so that um, nothing you know, stays up overnight. But we had one load left, and I think we had 10 minutes in our day, and a roll of film runs about 10 minutes. So Roger said, let's put up the camera here, and um, we'll just have Russell and Ian dance on the bed and somebody grabbed a boombox and, and put on that tape of George Michael, which actually ended up in the picture, believe it or not. And the two of them danced. And basically, we just said, roll camera. And then we rolled the boombox sound. And everything that you see is completely improvised. It wasn't written in the script. Uh, nobody ever talked about shooting it even 15 minutes before the camera rolled. And we only did it once. And when the film ran out, the time of the day was over and we all had to go home and that was it and a big chunk of it is right here in the final movie and that's that's really a tribute to to Roger who can see the opportunity and seize it right at that moment and I don't think this is something that you could have staged or written really but it's one of my favorite scenes This location here is, I think, the most beautiful location uh, in the picture because it's just a really richly appointed dining room. And it, it was a lot of fun to light and shoot and make sure that we have all these nice things going on in the background and break out of our somewhat claustrophobic location. There are really only a few times that we can really break out of, of these little dorm room boxes and uh, some of that were the exteriors on, on Redlands and this was another one of those occasions. And I think these scenes balance out the other locations of the movie and make it feel open and, and feel like it's not confined, whereas I think if you were only in those um, dorm rooms all the time, that eventually, no matter how much we try to make them look interesting, the audience would feel somewhat boxed in. Um, but this is one of those places where we could really open up and sort of 
feel a world that's beyond uh, the, the canvas and that, that has all this texture to it. Um, and of course, this is something that couldn't really be built you'd, because you'd be spending so much money on um, tapestries and, and wood and, you know, just humongous sets. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> and what classes are you taking, Dick? Mm, Gangbang 101. Russell, who plays Dick, who's in the scene, really only worked on the picture one day. But um, whenever I talk to people who have seen the film, almost everybody mentions his performance. It's really a tribute to how an actor can come in and just with one day's work uh, create something that's so memorable that uh, it definitely sticks with you out of the whole film. <laughs> what has happened to you? The scene here at the table is shot all from Ian Summerholder's point of view. This was an approach that uh, I talked about with Roger, and Roger really wanted to feel like he's in Ian's head. So we have Ian in a close-up by himself, and then everybody else shot from Ian's point of view. Normally in a table scene like this, Many directors would want an establishing shot, uh, something that shows the relationship of the people to each other in the frame so that later on you, you understand how they're sitting and, and where they're looking. Roger not only uh, didn't want that, he was actually adamant about uh, not having anything like that. This is really the only shot where you see their spatial relation. And um, I thought it was very gutsy because I think most directors in a case like this would say, well, that's how I want the scene to be, but I'll just shoot an establishing shot just so I have it in case I need it. But again, of course, because we had to do this film on a budget in a certain amount of time, it really helped us that Roger was so sure of what he needed that we didn't have to waste time getting things that, that we didn't need. And that made my work a lot easier and it made uh, all of uh, us be able to spend what resources we had on the on the things that really count. One of the things that can happen on films, especially with inexperienced directors, is that directors will want to get a lot of different options because they don't know how the final scene will cut and, you know, to a certain degree that's absolutely necessary because, of course, uh, things change and you do need a certain amount of flexibility, but it's an important judgment decision to know how much flexibility is necessary so that you can alter the scene and, and help the picture and how much flexibility is too much so that you're just wasting time shooting things that really aren't needed. This scene, the dress to get screwed party, is of course one of the scenes that sticks out and again invariably anybody who sees the film comes up to me afterwards and says, wasn't that scene a lot of fun to shoot, all those naked women? And yet that was I think the first day that Roger and I both caught that really awful flu and we're shooting it on a very cold California day and because the steady cam shot really goes through the entire location, we had our monitor set up outside because we couldn't be anywhere within view of the camera. So while you're seeing all these naked women thinking it must be fun to shoot, I can assure you both Roger and I were sitting freezing in the rain outside 
I'm absolutely miserable and uh, every time a scene, uh, a shot got cut or something went wrong, we had to get up and go through the rain and into the cold and then into the location and fight our way in there with the little strength that we had left, make our adjustments and then walk back into our freezing purgatory. So um, it was not fun to shoot. In case you're wondering. Just waste some time and waste some money. She's got a boyfriend? When I went to college, of course, there never were any parties like this, so I don't I don't know what school Roger went to, but I think I went to the wrong college. This close-up is one of my favorite close-ups because it is so full of expression and it's so out there and it really is just James's face, it's nothing else. And with his face, he makes the whole scene work. It's, uh, it's one of those examples of how little you need to really make a movie moment happen. There was really a special feeling about making this film because we were all in the same boat and everybody was working together and trying to trying really hard to make something special with whatever resources we had and we really cared a lot. Every last person on this film cared about making a great picture and there was a great camaraderie also between the crew and the actors. And we shot a lot of scenes like this that were kind of intimate, uh, sometimes difficult scenes. And it never felt awkward, I don't think, for anybody. I think there was an openness amongst everybody and a spirit of wanting to do this so that, you know, even if a camera was right in Jessica's face, you know, the cameraman almost sitting on top of her, it was okay and um, in other scenes where there was nudity or where there was uh, simulated rape, things that can be very, very awkward, it was always a safe environment for the actors to work in and, and I think we really just had a really smooth and, and wonderful time and I think really everybody uh, looks back on this and um, counts this as one of the best experiences they've ever had working on a picture. I was born in a Holiday Inn. Better that it's not long. I like this composition. It's a nice composition with uh, Jessica in the foreground and uh, James out of focus and then the focus shifting back to him. I've written you this last letter because I know I'll never have you. I stood in a corner and watched you go off with her. She's so beneath you. Here we're back in our you post office and this is actually a, a super-sized mailbox that uh, Roger had made um, that Sharon's department manufactured and an oversized letter so that we could actually feel like we're right inside there, right next to the letter. The suicide scene was a very difficult scene to film. We were working in a small bathroom. 
It was a difficult scene for the actress and there wasn't a lot of space. Um, we had some very wide shots planned, even though the scene starts out very close here. So we had to uh, move the lights way out of the way and at the same time we wanted to have the flicker effect from the candles. But what you see here, the, the flicker that's actually coming from uh, a bank of lights that are on flicker boxes and that, that are simulating candlelight and of course it's all warmed up so that we get this uh, golden tone and really the whole mood is kind of going counter to uh, to what the scene is about which is really quite horrible because it really has kind of a romantic feel and I think that counterpoint actually enhances the effect of the scene and of course Roger took that a lot further with the music as well and and what I love about this scene is that again everything that you need to know and everything uh, that plays plays out in this one shot yes there are other shots of course before but really the crux of the scene is played out in this one simple medium shot and and all that happens is that here it tilts over to the side on a dutch head it's called a dutch shot when you go off into an angle like this and it's so normal and at the same time so different that it really is unnerving and combined with what you know it's going on is making this a very very powerful scene and if you think of how other filmmakers might try to to build a suicide scene like this and what um, shots and elements they would use and how graphic it might be I think you realize that you can do a lot more with very very simple suggestions and that really is the genius of Roger Avery. I love this out-of-focus shot. I wish people would shoot out-of-focus a lot more often. It just really works. It makes a statement and um, you still see everything that's there and yet there would be people who look at a shot like this and, and say, well, it's not right, it's out of focus. And uh, one of the wonderful things on this picture was that we always were encouraged to experiment and Roger tried to create that kind of environment and even the studio was behind that spirit of experimentation so that we could look at that and say, hey, that looks cool and end up using it. did it with her because I'm in love with you. This scene was shot entirely handheld. This was um, a decision to make the, uh, the scene feel more dramatic and, um, and give it a feel that's quite different from the rest of the film. So what we did here was that my camera operator, Michael Scott, was shooting the scene handheld a whole bunch of times. And basically every time you do that, it, it can turn out differently because in this case, Shannon was doing different things every time. And um, 
Mike was doing different things. And then after a while, we decided that I'd start shooting, I like shooting handheld, and um, we just wanted to mix it up a little bit more. So I would start shooting handheld takes as well so that there would be even more difference. And, and really, this was one of the cases where we didn't follow our usual approach of uh, sharpshooting and just getting the things that we needed. We just ran through the scene a whole bunch of times with lots of different people shooting and, um, and lots of different things happening. And, and Roger made that scene in the editing. girl who we always put in the background in all these different scenes and it's really funny because you can tell here that she's in them but uh, it was really fun for us to build her into the background and make sure she's there even when you can't tell that she's there and there are quite a few more shots of her beyond the ones you just saw that are in the film. I wonder if you could pick all of them out. I really doubt that you wouldn't miss some because we were very very clever at hiding her in the background. Well. There's a, another shot coming up here that um, I really liked, and this was a, a suggestion that uh, that Roger had, and something that um, my camera assistant Tom Vandermillen did really well. When Jessica Biel comes up here, and James looks at her, and he steps up, he's perfectly in focus because, of course, Tom can keep him in focus. But now Roger asked him to actually put him out of focus, and then bring it slowly back in, just as he's deciding what to do to punch her. And it's a really nice little moment. It's something weird, because I don't think many directors would ask you to all of a sudden throw their star out of focus in the middle of a shot. But it was a really subtle cinematic device and, uh, and a beautiful thing, and it just worked perfectly. This is Jameson's room. That's the, the set that we built in, in a larger room. This is really the scene that we built that set for because we wanted uh, to be able to, to cover the uh, hanging and, uh, and the action here and, and be able to move around a little bit. So we needed to have a little bit more room than, than the normal uh, dorm rooms that we had would have afforded us. The window there is real, that's the real wall, and uh, of course we have um, big lights outside, 18K HMIs that, that we use for daylight and that stream in through the windows. And then um, in a scene like this, we, we match that with HMIs on the inside uh, for fill light. Of course, when we don't have windows and when we're shooting night, we, we don't use those big lights outside and uh, we use tungsten lights on the inside. But in this case, uh, the scene is actually lit from the outside, and there's really uh, nothing, nothing on the inside. So you just feel the wind, the light streaming in from the window, and uh, that's about it. And this was actually uh, one of our special effects here. We had uh, a small special effects budget, and one of the effects was the hook here in the ceiling that holds when it's supposed to, but that can also be exploded so that it uh, falls out.
the cinematographer's job is really to translate the director's vision and make sure that vision comes out on screen. It's a little bit like a go-between between the imagination and the real world because it entails talking to the director and getting into the director's head and coming up with a look or a vision that's appropriate for a scene and it's very artistic and emotional to uh, to do that and then the cinematographer has to turn around and deal with a world that is budgets equipment and time and make that world fit the the imagination and the creativity on the other end and that's actually the part that I like about the job, that it, it combines those two worlds and it has very technical and very creative aspects. And uh, it, it definitely is necessary to be uh, interested in both those aspects because I don't think you can do it either way. If you don't, if you don't care about technology and you don't have fun playing with toys, then being a cinematographer is probably the wrong job for you. But on the other hand, if you like gadgets, and you like to be creative, it's a pretty nice combination. James Vanderbeek, by the way, is one of the nicest people you could ever want to work with. He's such a thoroughly professional actor, and I have to admit, when I heard that he was starring in the film, I had no idea what to expect, because all I knew him from was Dawson's Creek, and that's not even really something I watch that much, but, but um, he, uh, he was so fabulous in this movie, and I, I'm so proud of having worked with him because he really uh, created a character completely unlike what people know him for and absolutely appropriate for the film. And he was just a treasure, an, an absolute pleasure to work with, the nicest guy to hang out with while you're working, after you're working. And uh, I just can't say that I've ever worked with a nicer person than him. Sean, you're sick. Wait a minute! This scene was really shot by Roger Avery, who's part of the camera department in, in this movie. Um, he went to Europe, he had two video cameras uh, with him, and uh, we had at one point actually talked about going, uh, me going with them, but it just didn't make sense that that many people would be traveling with Victor, and um, it, it was certainly would have been more conspicuous. So it was actually decided that that Roger would shoot on his own. And I think he did a really terrific job. I mean, it's just really fun footage, and uh, I did get involved in adjusting the colors um, when he came back because the colors were uh, a little bit all over the place depending on the light in the different locations, and we actually scanned in 
the uh, digital footage and then uh, adjusted it and then filmed it back out. And when I did that, I tried to leave weird colors in there or, or sometimes even emphasize them. For example, this blue shot here or the green colorless shots um, to help show that this is over a longer period of time, that there are different uh, locations and different fields and uh, different weather conditions. And, and I, I'm really happy with the way it looks. I think Roger did an amazing job and uh, the colors worked out. And everybody that sees the film always comments on, on this scene and how wonderfully it is shot. So it's great for the picture. The equipment that he used, the digital video cameras, they're so small and handheld that you can feel in the movement how light they are. Because when you shoot handheld with a 35mm camera, um, even though it's in your hand, the camera is so heavy that it has a certain momentum. So it, uh, it takes a little bit longer to get into motion and takes a little bit longer to stop. The handheld video cameras are so light that that kind of movement is instantaneous, and so you immediately feel that um, that something is different here. That's why, for the right application, these cameras actually are perfect. Um, it's just important to determine what they're good for, and um, I don't think this really could have been shot any other way. I shot a, a documentary, uh, Rattle and Hum, in which we use 16mm cameras and uh, the amount of film that you produce by shooting this much is just suitcases full of, of film and also you need to have loaders that continuously feed you new mags because they only last 10 minutes and that uh, keep filling mags with fresh film and downloading the old film. And it's something that logistically would be impossible in a situation like this. So this particular sequence actually I don't think could have been shot any other way than the way Roger did it. And that's why the digital video equipment is great because if you can get something that you can't get any other way it's clearly the right equipment for the job. So Roger and I just had a little conversation off uh, track while we took a little break and since I don't really have much to do with the rest of the shooting of the scene I'll, uh, I'll just tell you what that conversation was. It was basically talking about how much we love this picture and how much it means to us. And it reminded me of the fact that I've talked about this before, that we all had so much fun on this. But I think the last time I felt like this when shooting something was when I was in film school. Because in film school, you make your own pictures, you make your friends' pictures, and there's absolutely no commercial pressure. So then I ended up back here. This is uh, the diner scene. It's a night scene. Um, this was shot in a little diner off of 6th Street, I think, in Los Angeles. It was actually shot in the middle of the day, and this is one of those situations where we had to build a tent. You could just black out the windows out there, but of course it would look kind of flat. And so we actually built a rather large tent that included just a couple of cars and a little bit of the street. Of course, unfortunately, we couldn't tent in 6th Street, but but something just so there's a little bit of depth there. And we actually left some of the fluorescents uh, that were in the diner on that are green to give it a, a little bit of a, of a greenish sort of fluorescent feel. Normally, on a picture, you would actually change all of those out and, and adjust them to uh, the color temperature of the other lights, but in this case we decided we wanted to have that kind of uh, diner 
fluorescent field. How young is she? <laughs> is she you know, out of the car seat, onto my meat. <laughs> if she's bleeding, I'm breeding. <laughs> if there's grass in the field, play ball. <laughs> you know? Old enough to pee, old enough for me. Yeah. Ow. Bateman. Bateman, c come on, what's up, man? <laughs> you got any too common? Want. Here's one of the more extreme Three angles. Minutes. This is a close-up of James Vanderbeek that's from so low that you almost start to lose his eyes, but I love the shot. It's just so extreme that uh, it sticks out. It's quite unusual. What? All right. We take your car and I drive. Looking right up his nostrils. with him, bitch. Fucker. Ow. I want change. Bring daddy back change. For this night driving, we had to light up quite a long stretch of road. The scene uh, plays for almost a minute, I think, and, uh, and the car's driving at a fairly good clip, so we actually had big lights that were hidden in the background uh, between the trees that are lighting up um, the road uh, for about a mile. And it just barely gave us enough time to get in, maybe a take and a half before we had to turn around and do it again. And we were very careful. We didn't want to light up the background too much. We really wanted to make it very subtle so that uh, it feels like you're you know, somewhere on the East Coast between smaller towns and um, there aren't a lot of streetlights out there, but just to have a little bit of a feel uh, of a sense that something's going by out there. It doesn't leave home. This is back at the drug dealer's house. We used the uh, same location for um, exterior and interior here. We have a scene coming up right here at the door, um, and this was a night scene. And the posts that you see holding up that uh, little balcony were all white. And I had asked Sharon Seymour to please paint them green so that they're not bright white posts behind Thomas's head right there. That's one of those things where we saw, where I saw the location, and I knew the scene, and I immediately had this horror vision of um, a bright white post right behind his head, which just is simply unavoidable. Fortunately, having somebody like Sharon, she knows me, she uh, immediately took care of me and made it so that uh, there was no lighting problem. And again, we're back to the weird color in the, in the drug dealer's house. This time we're just sort of maintaining the feel, even though it's not justified by the, uh, the bedsheets anymore and the light coming in. Now it's justified by his colored lamps and uh, his taste in decorating. So you have a garish yellow that uh, ties into the day scene the out in the living room and uh, in the kitchen we went for a very sort of desaturated bluish uh, feel that uh, is supposed to make the scene more scary. And another uh, film trick here, this time uh, we have marijuana and uh, that's actually hay and uh, glue mixed together so that uh, it would form bricks, and the stuff stunk so bad that I think you actually got high without smoking any of it. 
Don't act crazy, man. Me and my buddy Mitch just came by to pick up. Again, in this scene, we also employed some handheld uh, coming up. Uh, actually, this is already handheld, but it gets a little wilder uh, later on for the fight. Thousand dollars, asshole. Where's my fucking money? Hey, wait, wait a minute. Wait. Uh, I'm gonna wait in the, the car. Excuse me. Wait. Wait. Wait for what, asshole? You owe me some fucking money. Listen. And here again, we tried to mix things up a little bit. My camera operator, Mike Scott, uh, did a bunch of takes, and then I would do a bunch of takes, and you know, just get a different feel and and make it uh, dynamic and um, create movement. I don't even know what you're talking about. We shot most of this scene during the day, so the windows were blacked out. Um, the door in the other direction was tented here. Um, and we timed it so that uh, we would finish the day's work and get our nighttime shots when, when it was actually dark. But this part of the work could all be done during the day and made to look like night. And only the exterior shots really had to be shot at night. It usually helps to shoot during the day because everybody's more alert and um, the work pace is uh, a bit faster. So unless it's absolutely necessary to shoot at night, um, it actually helps to to try and shoot as much as you can during the day. Of course, once it gets to scenes like this, um, then you need to see the yard and the street, and that simply can't be done during the day. Let me in. Let me in. I have the keys. I have the keys. Let me in. Come on. There's actually a car chase following this that was also cut from the movie, along with a whole slew of uh, my other favorite scenes. The scene in which Sean Bateman talks to his older brother Patrick, um, there were actually two scenes, so we had two scenes uh, with the American Psycho, one in his office and one uh, in his apartment. And they were actually a couple of my favorite scenes, but as a cinematographer, uh, on a picture, I think I've learned now that your favorite shot never gets into the picture and your least favorite always does. So um, if any of you uh, shoot your movie, just count on that uh, from the beginning. For some reason, it always ends up that way. Thomas Ian Nicholas is so funny in this scene. It's such a great character that he created, this, this scared a <laughs> little guy, and I remember we were shooting this scene um, at the Redlands campus, and everybody just cracking up about how freaked out he is. It's a, it's a dramatic scene, and he's really upset, but I remember around the monitor, everybody was laughing after every take. Fucking spit in my car. Fuck. Um. Um, we're also here at the transition to um, the winter period in the movie. So the, uh, the night scenes now are getting cooler. We're toning down the uh, orange light and getting into the cool blue light that uh, symbolizes winter. And of course, uh, as you'll soon see, also into the first snow. Victor's back from Europe. Really? <laughs> this scene is the first really full blue night scene, and 
I think it turned out really beautifully. It's a great location. And um, the my fav one of my favorite shots is coming up, which is the snowflake shot, which I'll talk about in the moment. But it, it was just a really pretty uh, scene out here at night. And um, the fact that they're on different levels and that we have these um, accentuated angles on both of them, it's just a, a very interesting way to to cover what you know could otherwise just be a, a boring talking head scene. And I love the little accents, the fact that you can see that window behind her that's lit up in the church and the leaves that you feel on the ground that, that uh, try to create the, a sense of time. It's all those little details that, that are part of uh, creating an image. And uh, none of that, of course, is there when we set up the camera. So these leaves aren't there by accident. They're actually placed there uh, on purpose. Know me. Know me. Nobody knows anyone else ever. Just like a light in the background there is turned on on purpose. Somebody has to, you know, open the door, um, go in there, uh, run cables in there, put in a light, and then just set it to the right level so uh, that that effect is created. And this shot here is another brilliant Roger Avery shot. It's actually shot of a techno crane where we looked up and tilted down to here and uh, then with a special effect put in the tear and now boom up and go to straight overhead. And the first snow starts to fall. And it so perfectly expresses that character and that moment that uh, I think that is brilliant directing. The snow scenes were some of my favorite scenes to shoot because it's night exterior, which always gives the cameraman a good chance to, uh, to light um, because there's no light there. And at night, really, every light that you see, every last bit is created. It's all made artificially because a movie camera would really see nothing at night because the light just isn't strong enough. Um, so it's a totally blank canvas, and um, we had this beautiful Redlands campus location. And then, of course, uh, adding visual elements like snow makes it uh, especially interesting. And it was a lot of fun to play with. It was hard on this budget because we would always have to think about how much area we really could cover. And we would have to very, very smartly uh, allocate our resources. So in the deep background, we would throw snow blankets, which when you look up close at them are probably the least convincing, but it works very well in the in the deep background. And then as we got closer, we would use better snow blankets and very close to the camera, we would actually use real snow. And in the middle ground, foam or, or fake snow. And then we would uh, strategically place snowflakes falling so that uh, you get the feel of snow falling everywhere, though uh, it clearly isn't. Um, if you were actually there on the set, you would see that it's only falling in places um, where it makes it look like it's falling everywhere. But of course, we, we really couldn't cover much area. So really here, we've got snow falling in maybe two, three places, but it looks like the whole frame is covered with it. This, incidentally, is my favorite scene uh, in the film lighting-wise, because it's just very, very simple. But to me, it feels so absolutely real, and, and uh, it has a 
beauty in its simplicity that uh, I just think, like you know, lighting-wise, this is probably the, the best scene in the film. The amphitheater is a, is a wonderful location. We actually stumbled upon it by accident. We had planned to scene the, we had planned to film the scene someplace else. I think we lost that location, or something happened, and uh, we said, "How about there?" And it turns out that it's so graphic that all these side angles here, with that curve in the background, that leads your eye directly into James. Uh, it's just a, a wonderful composition. And then Ian here coming out of the shadows. And uh, the snow, it uh, to me is just um, the the best uh, the that we did in the whole film. It means, Paul, you're not ever gonna know me. Figure it out. Deal with it. And the snow, I think, ended up looking very, very realistic, uh, especially considering how how tough it was to really make it work all right. Um, we actually did quite a few takes um, until we got it falling evenly and, and making it feel like it's covering the frame. And when you have a lot of money and a lot of time, that's really not that big a deal. For us, with our six bags of flakes and our two cherry pickers and two fans with which they were blown, it was quite an achievement. Here you can see the post efforts location really uh, showing off because you can see the uh, night exterior through the windows and uh, get the feel of how nice that location really is. Welcome to Buford T. Pusher County. That uh, baseball bat was actually made out of uh, styrofoam, but I think it still hurt. <laughs> he threw that quite hard. And these two angles here, on one, uh, the camera is literally on the ground being beaten <laughs> by these two guys. And then the other one, we're just right on top of him in his face. Again, it's handheld to, to emphasize the, uh, the motion and the fight. And here we're coming to the end of the film, which is tying into the beginning. The end of the world party, which we shot almost entirely forward and backward simultaneously. Underlighting on Jameson's face here also is something that is uh, a bit unusual. It makes him look uh, quite garish, and uh, it was a lot of fun to be able to light a character who's not supposed to be pretty, who we could actually purposefully make look unattractive. Which, of course, with some other characters in this film is almost impossible. When we look at Kate Bosworth there. <laughs> 
And on these zoom-ins, which are opticals and which turn quite grainy, uh, that's something that uh, Roger had really wanted to do because it reminded him of a time when um, these opticals couldn't be done any better. And uh, it just gives the film a texture and a feel of something that may really not exist in films anymore today because those things actually could be done perfectly, but um, we really purposefully didn't want them to be. And again, we're coming up on, on another one of my favorite scenes. And I think I just like snow scenes because all my favorite scenes turn out to be snow scenes. How are you, Miss Hand? But again, it's, it's very, very simple. It's just a, a single source light um, from the left side okay. there that lights them both and the building and a little background uh, light for the snow. And as Roger does very often, we covered this in just this one shot and the scene plays beautifully and really there is no coverage necessary. When we tried to cover these large areas, um, it sometimes became difficult. Here they're walking, and uh, to cover the entire walk with snow evenly was difficult because we just didn't have um, that many flakes to throw. And also, when you see the reverse coming up and we're looking out at the campus, we had a, an area that was far bigger than we could possibly ever hope to snow. So we actually used some, some tricks that I'll start to point out here so you can look for them when the shot comes up. For example, there were trees that were too big for us to actually get foam on. A lot of the snow on the hedges here is, is actually foam that's sprayed. And then you have uh, potato starch flakes in the foreground and snow blankets in the deep background. So what we did is we created an ice branch, uh, a tree branch with fake ice. And I placed it on a C-stand reaching into the side of the shot so that it would cover a tree that didn't have any snow on it. And when you look through the branches, you can see the tree and you can see that it has no snow on it right there on the left. But because that branch is so icy, I don't think anybody can actually compute that there is no snow on that tree. And of course, for the rest uh, of the scene, we did our old trick. You know, the trees in the deep background also don't have snow, but we just dumped so much in front of a light there that it sort of feels like there's white back there too. And um, then nearer the camera, we actually used uh, a truckload of real ice. And this shot here was shot in real snow um, up at Big Bear. We did that long after the movie was done. and. Um, Actually, we're up there and uh, waiting for snow, and that night it snowed for about five minutes, and you're seeing 30 seconds of that five minutes. I think I've harped enough about how much fun we had making this movie. I just want to say that uh, I think we're all really proud of it, and I just hope that uh, you guys out there have as much fun watching as, as we had making it.
You're going to make a stand, make a stand. 